Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. On today's episode, I am chatting with Candice Draw, and she's going to be sharing her experience and story as a caregiver. Welcome, Candice. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So let's get a, get right to it. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and what your experience has been? I My mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer um, back in 2011. And she, it was a sudden diagnosis. You know, there was no... Um, there were really, from what I understood, like no real warnings. It was just um, a day after the day after Thanksgiving when usually I would not have been at home, but she started having all these pains and which was really different for her, you know, not, she has, she started having severe pain. Anyway, I had to rush her to the hospital. And that's when after some scans and everything, we found out she had a stage four ovarian cancer that had spread to her liver. What, was your reaction at that time? And were you living at home then? Or, you know, kind of where, what was your background? Like what was going through your mind? So first of all, yes, I was living at home at the time. Um, I, well, I can say what was going through my mind was the initial shock. I didn't expect to, that's not the first thing you want to hear. You wake up and, you know, right after such a great day, it's such a great holiday. The next day it's like, okay, um, everything's, you know, about to get a little interesting, but she, she was, um, it was more like a, a very sudden diagnosis and they did not tell her initially because I was at the hospital with her. They pulled me in the back and told me first. And what was your role in supporting her through the process? Actually, before you answer that, they told you first. Did they tell her or did you tell her after? Actually, after um, they actually, while I was back there and they explained everything to me and actually showed me um, her scans from her CT, you know, they asked me, you know, they said, okay, well, we already called the on-call oncologist and we, you know, they were going to tell her, tell her right then and there. So I said, well, give me a second. I was the one that said, please give me a second. I needed to make some phone calls. I needed to tell some family members first. And, you know, I wanted to tell her when, um, you know, I had some people on the phone and, you know, like my siblings, my dad, like tell them exactly what was going on. Like, so we would all tell her together. And of course, that was before COVID when all of you could come to the hospital and, and have that conversation. So what happened after that? So you told her, and and again, what was your role in her treatment? So as, so first of all, let me say that she did not have the traditional treatment. Once she was aware of her diagnosis, she ended up 
choosing. Well, they didn't think that initially they didn't think she would last um, past a year. So I don't want to say it was the death sentence, but they, they were really, really skeptical, at least upon, you know, first, like, okay, if she, she needs treatment, but, you know, uh, you know, she may not, you know, last past the year, which was really devastating. Of course, I didn't tell her that. So when she found out about her diagnosis, her next move was to figure out what the best treatment would have been um, for her. So she just decided to do um, a natural route at first. She did not choose conventional. And what was that natural route? Because that's different for everybody. Everyone picks. Right. Some people don't want to do treatment at all, or some people start going kind of more of, you know, vitamins and supplements. So what was that journey for her? So the journey, the journey for her was vitamin supplements and she went vegan. Okay. And so what happened at that point? Well, she decided to go vegan um, because she felt that that would have increased her quality of life more versus her getting chemo radiation right away. She felt that that would have destroyed her body even more. So she said that she wanted to do something that was less invasive. So it's, it's interesting when we talk about vegan, because we know, and, and the data keeps evolving that, you know, the more plants you eat, the less processed food you eat, the better it is for cancer. I actually have a whole podcast episode with my husband who did go vegan during the pandemic about how to eat more plants. So, you know, I think it's, it's definitely dietary changes help. I think there's a lot, we just don't know about diet and cancer yet that's evolving. Yes. Yes. And, and really it, it, it's amazing what it did for her. I can't say that it did. It, it was the most, I see why some people don't like doing it because it is a very drastic change, but it does add to your quality of life. I I agree. I think that, you know, we talk about this whole notion of food as medicine and about all the, you know, the medicines that we put in our body and toxins and poisons, and people don't really think about all the food that they're putting in their body, which is the same, you know, has has toxins and chemicals. So I think there's a lot to it. And has the same effect in some cases, either way it's poison. Exactly. You know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. What was your family's reaction to her first decision. Okay, so if I could be a little bit transparent, (laughs) we were not all that excited about her choosing not to get conventional treatment. Okay, so, you know, you hear stage four, you hear this, you hear that, you hear doctors and everything that they say. The first thing is, okay, wait a minute, what can we do? What can we do? You know, what would be the quickest way? And then when she opted to go a different way, I can't say it was easy for us to to deal with, Um, especially um, not... Well, I could say not me because in my mind, I was thinking, okay, why are you not, you know, why do you feel this would be the better way? But again, she saw chemo radiation as you're poisoning my body. You're killing my cells. You're doing this to me. Is that really helping me? What are other options available? And can I do those options? So that's the route that she chose initially. And what happened after you know, that first time where she chose this, the non-conventional route, did she end up getting chemotherapy later? She did. So about a year, she had conventional treatment for about a year or two. So when when I say conventional, I, I don't just mean we were at home making shakes and potions and all of that. I, I mean that we were out visiting as many naturopathic doctors as we could 
seeing what their initial plans were, what they thought would work for her. We, you know, um, I will say that she, it increased her strength level. I'll say she, her skin was clearer. I'll say that she, she felt better a little bit overall, but the worse the cancer got, the, the harder it was to just keep saying that this is working for me. Um, there were some other things that she had that actually normalized out and, and went away. Like my mother was diabetic. So eventually that was no longer. Um, and her blood pressure completely normalized out. It was, it made like the dietary changes really made a significant change to her overall health. But when it came to the cancer, the more that the cancer progressed, um, she began to see that she was going to have to try something else, something a little bit more aggressive. Do you have any advice for caregivers who are kind of facing the same situation, right? Whose family member or loved one is saying, I want to choose a path that they may not necessarily agree with, right? How do you reconcile and still be there for your family or loved one, but maybe you don't a hundred percent agree, you know, how do you not let your biases get in the way of what they want to do? Well, the first thing you have to do is, first of all, take a deep breath because you're going to need to take a lot of them. <laughs> you you really need to to step back and real and, and like have a conversation with your loved one and see where they're coming from and see why they feel the way that they feel. And then eventually come to the come to terms with, OK, well, this is their body. They have to decide the way that they want to go. Um, and then you just have to come to a place of acceptance, which can take time. I think that's really important because I, you know, in order to be truly honest with each other, you have to understand where they're coming from. And I yes, think, you do. You know, we hear this as an oncologist. I hear this a lot, and I think some of it stems from the fact that cancer takes so much from people. It, you know, your body. You feel like your body's betrayed you, and this is, in a way, sometimes is a way for you to take control over the situation and saying, well, I didn't, I can't control that I got cancer, but I'm going to control the treatment and I'm going to do it on my terms. Yes. And for a lot of people, that's extremely important. You know, you, you don't want to feel that all your options are taken away because you already feel like they are. So you really have to come to terms with your loved one and decide, and if they decide that this is the route that they choose to go, you have, you just have to accept it and be supportive as much as you can. And I think understanding too, and I try to ask my patients this, but you know, what is your goal, right? Some people will say, I want to live as long as possible. I don't care in which state, if I'm in pain, but I'm living, that's meaningful to me. And then other people don't want to live in pain. So I think understanding where everyone is coming from is really important. Yeah. And if you're a caregiver that's taking care of someone with cancer, it's, it's, extremely difficult. I'll say, and not even cancer, if you're a caregiver in general, it is very, very difficult to see your loved one suffering, but then knowing that there's nothing you can do, but then trying to still be um, of support can be emotional. It could be emotionally exhausting. Mm -hmm. I agree. How did you take care of yourself during that time? Well, at first, um, I really didn't know what to do. But I will say that I did have a lot of supportive friends. Mm -hmm. I had a good um, support circle that knew what was going on when my mother got diagnosed and um, were there for me. Um, sometimes as a caregiver, you face a lot of isolation. Mm 
So I really didn't go many places or do much of anything because the worse she got, the more I had to be home and be local to be with her. But I, there were times when I got out of the house and I was so excited because <laughs> I actually, you know, and it was times actually that I really needed it. I really, really needed the, the, the fellowship with other people. Um, so at first that's how I dealt with it. Um, I ended up actually being a part of a few support groups um, towards the um, end of her life. We actually went to Cancer Treatment Centers of America and the closest location to Chicago is in Zion. And we actually went there uh, for a week and they, um, and she was receiving treatment and that's when she actually had her first round of chemo and radiation along with some other procedures when we went to cancer treatment centers. I think what you mentioned about, you know, we always ask cancer patients, right? People who are undergoing cancer treatment, how are you doing? What do you need? And we're not very good at asking caregivers. You know, right. And I think we have to really shift our focus because and include caregivers and caretakers into that conversation about making sure you're taking time for yourself and you're, you have an outlet and you have support because it's probably sometimes it was probably sometimes harder for you than for your mom. Yeah. And initially, if you're taking care of a loved one, you're not going to take time for yourself. Um, it's just not something that happens. You usually um, find that most of your energy is gone, just taking care of that person. So to take care of yourself at the end of the day, most of the time that does not happen. You actually have to put it in your mind to do that. You have to be reminded. That's where I said you need a good support system. You need to be part of groups that will encourage you to do that and actually find time for it. Um, I, my mother and I actually had a, a conversation before she passed about how, um, she knew that I had sacrificed a lot to, to stay home with her for those almost four years. And I had done a lot for her. So she wanted me to concentrate more on myself and concentrate on moving my life forward, no matter what happened to her or whatever was going on with her. She wanted me to move my life forward. And one thing that I like about cancer support communities like Gilda's Club or, you know, or different uh, support groups or like even cancer treatment centers is that they have support groups there for caregivers. They have support for people who are taking care of their loved ones. And they're very, they're very nice. They're very um, kind to you. And it's more like it's a very non-judgmental environment where you can sit and talk about the stresses that you deal with while your loved ones doing treatment or what, whatever they may be going through. It's a lot of resources there for you as a caregiver. Are there any resources that you felt, you know, were especially helpful or something you would want to share with others? There are more free, free groups available than, you know, I think people realize. So once my, um, my mom died shortly after her treatment, of chemo and radiation. So because um, her immune system was weak, she was weak. And so she ended up catching a blood infection. And then from that, she, um, she had a stroke and passed because the, it was a little bit too much for her. So I will say that um, 
I didn't know that a lot was available for me, I would say, while she was going through treatment. Once she passed and once I, um, part of one of the things that helped me get through grieving was joining a lot of, joining support groups, but also joining organizations that dealt with her type of cancer, meeting other people who had uh, battled it, survived it. So I got involved in a lot of local groups, um, like the uh, National Variant Cancer Coalition, Illinois chapter. I became a member and I've still been a member for, um, this is going on my fourth year. And then I became a board member for Gilda's Club Chicago and found out about a lot of different resources that were available that I didn't know were available. So, you know, it's really just a matter of, um, I guess you could say caregivers in their areas. You could Google see what's available. And then sometimes the hospitals where your loved ones are at, they have resources for you too. What was your mom's death like for you? It was extremely difficult. Um, I don't think I ever, I literally was watching, you know, seeing her die and it was very, very hard for me. I mean, I really, you know, seeing a parent, you know, die was really, it was, it was so hard to go through all of that. You know, not a lot of sleep for me, a lot of panicking, um, restless nights. I had two younger siblings at home. So it was like trying to keep things normal, but not acting normal. Because I, I don't want to say her death was sudden, but once she once she caught a blood infection, it really, really um, brought her immune system, her whole body just down. And it was hard seeing that. And what how did how did you start to come? Not that you you ever heal from that, but how did you start to come out of that acute grieving phase? You know what? How long did it take? What helped you? I went to therapy. One of the things that helped me was therapy. I started meeting people who were battling cancer, more specifically her kind of cancer. And I started talking to some of them who had survived it and others who had lost. I met a couple of um, young women around my age at the time who had lost parents from ovarian cancer. And so we ended up becoming friends and meeting up and, and, and talking about it. And that helped me. I would say that it took me at least a year and a half to completely um, even start to feel normal again. Um, it was very numbing to have Mother's Day, her birthday, and the anniversary of her death all within the same couple of months. So it was very, very hard for me. I mean, the first, I can tell you the first um, time, like right after her death, her birthday was the next month. And so like, I literally did not want to do anything. I really was just completely... I don't want to talk to anybody. Please don't come near me. That's how I was. And that's, you know, when you're grieving, that's normal. But um, I started to feel better a year and a half after her, she passed. I think that's a really important point that there's no right amount of time or an appropriate length of time that, you know, everyone grieves in their own way. And some people start. Right. And, and there isn't. Right. And there isn't a, a certain length of time just because it took me a, a year and a half doesn't mean that it's, it'll take someone else. And some people, they never start to feel normal again. I mean, I can tell you now that it I mean, it's four or five years later. Um, six years later, actually. And even around those times, I still start to feel a little bit you know, bad. I start I start to feel it. It's not as intense as it used to be. But again, that's just 
And, you know, from support groups and grieving, I mean, I'm always going to feel like that. You're always going to feel close to a parent, no matter how you lost them or what happened. So, you know, once I got help and once I opened up myself to, to learning more and really being around others who had gone through the same thing, I started to feel better. Now, you know, you touched on going to therapy. It's very understated. A lot of people don't do that after the death of a loved one. And it's really important. It helps you process a lot of feelings and your emotions. And there's a lot of times, I mean, it sounds like you and your mom had a lot of open conversations, but many people don't while someone is sick. We had a lot of open conversations. The Yeah. You know, I, I, I hear you say that, and that actually comes up in a lot of support groups where they don't have those frank conversations, the open conversations. And I was lucky because we did. I can say that we had more open conversations in that little spare in, in those years that we had ever had. And I can say too, that we were not the closest. Mother and I were not the closest. Uh, we became more close after her diagnosis. And then, you know, it really, we had a lot of tense moments, but we had a lot of great moments. And you're going to go through those ups and downs as a caregiver with the person you're taking care of. It takes a lot of stamina. It takes a lot of strength. And um, it's important if you have help available to, to ask for it. Some people don't, but if you do, you should. Absolutely. You know, we, in talking about ovarian cancer, we know that there are some genetic mutations that are linked to ovarian cancer, and those can be yes. inherited specifically the BRCA mutation. Did you get genetic tested? Did mom get genetic tested? Can you talk about your experience with that? I can. Um, I, so when my mother was diagnosed with um, ovarian cancer, you know, there was always the, the stigma around, well, you know, where are you going to your appointments and where are you taking the right precautions? And, you know, the truth is, is that just having a regular pap smear will not, deter, will not detect ovarian cancer. You have to ask for, for specific things in order for your gynecologist to even, you know, you have to, because ovarian cancer looks like just normal, it can look like gas, okay? It can look like just simple digestive issues and you don't know that that's what's going on. So once we learn, once I learned more about that and again, joining the chapters and then through her initial diagnosis, I did go for genetic testing. Um, I actually was a little nervous about that because I mean, you're sitting with the counselor and then you have that, then you have to go to this room and take this blood test. And, you know, they send the blood test out. It comes back a month later. And I can tell you there was some days I was like, oh my gosh, what are they going to find? Oh my goodness. But I, you know, it came back. I did not have the BRCA um, genes, but on my, um, and I'm meeting a couple of young women who, whose mothers had died from ovarian cancer, who end up having the genes, who ended up, you know, not having, you know. So what they did tell me was that um, it is good for me, um, the closer that I, you know, inch towards 40, to have it every year, just for my own, you know, sake, you know, because just because you don't have it now doesn't mean that you can't. So I, you know, it's just good to take precautions and to go and get um, examined. That's really important. I think what you said about advocating for yourself and, you know, so many times um, people don't know their family history and, or they don't know what to ask for. And the healthcare system, look, we'll all admit it is overburdened. And yes. sometimes you go for a visit and 
maybe your complaints aren't taken seriously or they're kind of attributed to, like you said, I mean, the symptoms of ovarian cancer could be just gas or, you know, stomach upset or bloating. And and so I think it's really, really important when we talk about ovarian cancer awareness, it's that education about, well, what are the symptoms? How do you determine if you're high risk? Do you have a family history? And then what you should be doing for yourself. You know, we see this right now a lot with COVID. People during the pandemic have not been going for their imaging or they've not been going for their exams. Sometimes people are afraid of losing their job if they take a day off, especially right now. And we're not seeing cancers diagnosed at the rate that they should be. And that means that people are just going undiagnosed and living with advanced disease that's going to present later with severe symptoms. So, you know, we advocacy is so, and, and education and empowerment is so important. Yes, it is. And I, um, I can say that once I knew, um, well, gynecological cancers run in my family. And with ovarian cancer being one of the deadly ones, as you know, I decided that whenever I did have a wellness exam, that it would be thorough. Like I started asking for ultrasounds. Mm-hmm. I started asking for transvaginal. I started saying different things so that they knew, like in my OB at the time, was asking me, okay, why, why do you, you know, tell me about this? She was a nude. And so I, when I told her, she completely understood. So I literally was asking for every test because I knew and, and every procedure, because I wanted to know, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be proactive about my own health. So how do you do that? Right. I mean, some people are, feel comfortable bringing up that saying, this is what I need. How would you tell someone or to, to have that frank conversation with their healthcare provider if they're scared or nervous about doing that? Well, to me, if you have a good conversation with their healthcare provider, then they, in my experience, they should be understanding and say, okay, these are some of the, they should take your concerns seriously. And if they don't, you still have a right to demand that they do. And you don't have to be grudgingly, you don't have to be mean about it, but you do have to be consistent and specific and tell them, this is what I need. This is what I'm looking for. I'm expecting this, you know, and to, and be proactive about it until you get it. And to, you know, here's another, I guess, hurdle that happens. You have to find out what your insurance covers, what it doesn't cover, because not all insurance covers genetic testing. You know, for instance, mine's covered it. My sister's didn't. So, you know, appealing it if possible, seeing what happens. Everybody doesn't know how to do that either. But those are steps that you can take Mm -hmm. to say, hey, I really need this. And then there are other places that you can go that will give you free exams. There are other free clinics that will give you imaging. Like you really just have to be to know what's available to you and you have to just do the research. I mean, you mostly... um, for me, because I had become connected in the ovarian cancer community, I really asked a lot of questions anyway, because I wanted to know what can I do to prolong my life. And if, say, genetic testing had it came back saying that I had BRCA1 or the BRCA2 genes, then it would have been scary. But, I, you know, then you have to go to your doctor and I guess basically you have to come up with a plan. Mm-hmm of how you're going to take things, how you're going to, you know, go from here. And some women choose to get hysterectomy. Some women choose to, you know, do that. So it, whatever course of action that you choose to take, you just have to be okay with it, but you do have to be consistent. And you need a plan. That's exactly you need a plan. plan. Tell me 
before we wrap up about some of the advocacy work that you've been doing? So I do work with the Illinois chapter of Ovarian Cancer Coalition. So we do a run walk every year. Um, That's part of it. I've also volunteered at different fairs that we've had um, sharing about um, ovarian cancer. Um, I'm an associate board member at Gilda's Club Chicago. Um, And so um, I'm always telling people that, you know, hey, there are a lot of free things available. You can download this calendar and see everything that Gilda's has. And, you know, I became a national advocate, went to D.C. this past year, last year, well, before COVID hit. And would have been back there last July, but then again, COVID hit. <laughs> so um, I I do a lot of um, blogging, podcasting, things like that, um, writing about ovarian cancer um, because I write a column in an online magazine called Curvicality. And I wrote a co- an, an article about how to look for what you don't know, how it could save your life and what you need to do. I really enjoy the advocacy work that I do. Um, it's something that I wish more people would jump on the advocacy train and do. <laughs> it's really um, fulfilling. And I've met so many people from across the country that all do the same. Either they have a connection themselves, they had ovarian cancer, or they had a loved one had it or a parent died. So it's really interesting how we have all these commonalities and we're all coming together to fight for the same thing. Tell me about Gilda's Club for those who may not be familiar with the organization. So Gilda's Club is the cancer support community, nationwide cancer support community. So depending on what state you're in, if you have a Gilda's Club, you can find that out just by a simple Google search. And what Gilda's Club is, is that, well, in Chicago, we the office is located in downtown Chicago, and it is all cancer support for everyone. So it's cancer support for children, adults. Um, There is a monthly calendar that you can go to Um, if you can just pull up the website. You can either stop by the clubhouse or you can pull up a website. Well, you can't now because of COVID, but you could stop by and pick up a schedule and it will show you every day that there are different activities that they do, support groups, camps for kids, um, different um, cancer support uh, like yoga, all kinds of things that they do at the studio and now virtually for people who are fighting cancer, or even if you have children, like if you have children that have cancer, there are different um, clubs and things for them, but also wellness, cooking, anything. And it's free. All you have to do is register. That's wonderful. I mean, I think that there are so many fantastic resources out there, but a lot of people aren't familiar with them. And especially for kids and all the things that there is available for children while their moms are going through this. Absolutely. There are, even in the summertime, which I thought was amazing, is there are free uh, day camps for children of parents who have cancer. Oh, that's great. That they're able to go to and, you know, have, and that's something fun for them to do. You know, it's, it's just, I found that the best way to heal from anything is in community. Mm-hmm. It's one of those, we need each other type things. I, I love that. And it's true. You can't, you can't do it on your own. You really can't. Is there anything that you want to share that we didn't get a a chance to touch on? No, we've pretty much hit everything. And if there is, um, is there a place where listeners can find you on social media if they want to connect with you more? So I have been featured across a lot of blogs and a lot of cancer advocacy. So if you go to Okra Hope and you type in my name, 
you'll find um, my advocacy work there. I've been featured in Cancer Wellness Magazine. I've been on Tina's Wish blogs. And um, if you do, if you go to Curvicality Magazine, curvicality.com, and you'll find every article I've ever written, but also on ovarian cancer there. So, and then I've also been on We Have Cancer Podcasts. And um, pretty soon my cancer story podcast. So if you go and you type in my name in the search bar, it'll come up with every episode that I've been on and, you know, really spreading awareness and really educating the community and more specifically the black community about certain different things and what is available to them and how to go about getting it. And also, you know, advances and also resources for caregivers. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be very grateful if you can leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and bring it to new listeners. As always, you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a great weekend, and I will see all of you next week.